Go ahead and grab your seats. It's a joy to be with you today. Um, as Austin is gallivanting around his homeland with his bride of 19 years, um, I'd say that's a good goal for us to have in marriage. 19 years and counting is it is longer than well, it's longer than I've been alive. So um, I'm right there with you guys. Just kidding. Just a few years beyond that. Um, great to be with you guys today. I, I wanted to continue a series in Crossroads here that you were unaware was happening. Uh, both Matt Ng and I have been very subtly uh, taking you through the book of James. Whenever we get the opportunity to preach, if you've noticed, he'll usually pick a text from James, and I'll do the same. Um, and that's just kind of been a little series we've been doing on the, on the down low. Um, but why don't you turn to the book of James, because... We're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, and at a very relevant subject, uh, the subject of suffering in the Christian life. And James has some really wonderful lessons on how we can endure suffering in our lives. So let's read James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the very word of the Lord and has so much to teach us this morning I wonder how many of you can relate to those moments in your childhood when you were on a vacation with your parents, and you were just about at that age where you understood the destination, but you didn't quite understand how long it would take to get there, and so what's that question that would be repeatedly asked? Are we there yet? Uh, My little daughter Felicity's in that stage, (laughs) and so... um, I, I remember being in that stage, and so it's kind of uh, fun to see her, you know, every three or four minutes. Are we there yet? And Ginger and I have kind of taught or learned to, to maybe don't give away the destination so quick, otherwise the, the question will come more frequently. I, I remember getting in that little minivan um, with my brother and sister crammed in the back with all of our belongings, it seemed, and driving six or seven hours down the East Coast to uh, a cool spot like Williamsburg, Virginia, or um, going to uh, an amusement park for the day. Not everybody gets to live in L.A. where amusement parks are like across the street, so we have to drive. And oftentimes in the car ride, you would get impatient and begin asking, are we there yet? And along the way, you would start getting in fights with your siblings Maybe the AC wasn't working so great, and so it was a little hot and sticky. And you, you were tempted, certainly as a kid, to kind of give up hope if you'd ever get there. 
and to lose sight of the prize. Your parents told you we're going on vacation, they told you where you're going, you're filled with excitement, but four hours into the ride and you're starting to think, is this even worth it? I'm bored out of my mind and I just want to get out of here. And so the message coming from the front seat would be, be patient, we're almost there, or we're not there yet, but just wait a little longer. Well, the, the Christians to whom James is writing this letter are kind of in an are we there yet situation, um, except it, it was far more serious than sitting in the backseat of a minivan on the way to an amusement park. Um, these Christians were really suffering. They, they were experiencing significant suffering. If you look at verse 7, he says, be patient, therefore. And that therefore is packing with it a whole lot of context. So if you go back to chapter 1 of James, you see who he's writing to, and he's writing to those of the dispersion, the 12 tribes in the dispersion, otherwise also known as the diaspora. These were Jewish Christians who were scattered all about the land, out of Israel, out of their hometown, out of the place of familiarity where they had grown, and they were following Christ but they were encountering a ton of difficulty. In fact, um, most letters begin with a pretty long introduction of salutation and hello. It's just common in the day. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 1, James introduces himself. He introduces who he's writing to. But then in verse 2, he just goes immediately into it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He immediately launches into addressing them in their suffering because they were suffering. Many of these Christians would have lost their entire families because of their choice to follow Jesus. And with that meant the loss of possessions, the loss of security and peace. They were truly scattered and truly hurting and reeling from the decision to follow Christ. In fact, if you go back to chapter 5, and the opening six verses of chapter 5 is this little section about how many of these Christians were being abused by the rich and the greedy. And so they were being taken advantage of. Um, Look at verse 5. James says to the wealthy, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. That's these Christians. Because he says, they do not resist you, speaking to the wicked wealthy. And then he immediately addresses those being persecuted in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers. These are the ones who are enduring trial. So can you relate to these suffering Christians? Um, Can you relate to the reality of suffering in your life? Certainly we we understand if you have been paying attention at all to global events, the horrors of this world, the massacre of the innocent, the devastation of entire people groups being ravaged by the wicked. We see all around us devastation and pain, but it doesn't take us long to just look at our own lives and we see experiences of suffering as well, don't we? Whether it's broken relationships, the health diagnoses, sometimes the form of suffering comes in 
the, the harm of those we love the most. Tragic accident, abuse. You know, honestly, and, and I, I'm not blind to this, some of us in this room, you may not have experienced that much suffering yet in life. Just because of the, where we live and the, the wealth of this nation, and maybe you've had, up to this point, a pretty easy ride. I heard a comedian uh, this week say he was interviewed for a job, and they asked him to give an example of a time he had overcome adversity. And he went, Adversity. And the first thing that came to his mind was that time they had no wind at sail camp in the summer. And it was a funny um, comment because he's saying, look, what, what kind of adversity have I gone through? And so maybe that's some of you who are saying, well, I really haven't suffered a, a ton. And, you know, maybe even as we look at the suffering of these Christians, I can't really relate. But, but here's something you do know for sure is that suffering is coming. No one gets out of this life without enduring suffering. It is coming. And in fact, Jesus promised that all Christians would suffer. If you, if, if you um, stand with Christ on the basis of the world hating him, you'll be hated. Isn't that a promise? Paul likewise says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So Suffering is coming. Many of us are enduring suffering. Maybe you've just come out of a trial. You're going into a trial. You're in the midst of it. Everyone suffers. And James has a message for suffering Christians. And the message is as simple as just noticing the repetition of a single word, patient. Be patient. Verse 8, be patient. Verse 10, as an example of patience. James has a message of patience. And in this section of verses, he gives us five lessons on patience in suffering. So what I want us to do um, for the time we have here is just walk through these verses. And it's really actually broken down very clearly in each verse uh, to look at five lessons on patience in suffering. We'll see that patience is necessary. That'll be verse 7. Patience is temporary. That's verse 8. Patience is belief in verse 9. Patience is proven in verse 10. And finally, in verse 11, patience is rewarded. So let's look at these lessons on patience. First, uh, patience is necessary. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. Patience is necessary. One, it's necessary because here we have James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus Christ himself, uh, giving us a command to be patient. So that should be good enough for us, right? If the Bible commands it, then it's necessary for our lives. And he does command it, be patient. Um, but there's a reason that it's commanded, and it's really as simple as this, is, is we, we're not home yet. We just sang, didn't we, about that moment when we'll have no more sin, when these broken tongues and, and sin-filled hearts, um, that it will all be eradicated and we'll be with our Lord in glory and sing in perfect unity and love to our Lord. 
there's coming a day for the Christian. This is the Christian hope, right? If you're a Christian this morning, this is what is keeping you going, is that one day it will no longer be this way. That one day Christ will return and conquer his enemies. And one day all that is broken will be made right. That's your hope as a Christian. Now can I just say this? If you're not a Christian, please think about what your hope is. What are you actually hoping in? It's really dangerous that we get so distracted in our lives that we rarely stop and pause and think about the future. But you know death is coming. And so if you don't love Jesus, I want you to think, what is your ultimate hope? Knowing that everything you're hoping in today will be taken away. Possessions, relationships, physical health, reputation, job, career. You know that's going away. So what is your ultimate hope? Well, if you don't have an ultimate hope in Christ, um, the invitation is for you to come and hope in Jesus today because Jesus promises, even as you look around this sin-ravaged, this devastated world, that it will one day all be made right. And we read something like in Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any more crying or pain. For all, it, it will all pass away. Everything will be made new. We talk a lot about the Garden of Eden, right? You realize the Bible begins with the garden and ends with the garden. The Bible begins with the Garden of Eden and it ends with the garden of the new heavens and new earth. Eden is coming back. And that's the hope of the Christian. But it's not here yet. We know that. And so James says, hold on, you're not at the destination yet, so be patient. He then gives an illustration. And James loves illustrations because he kind of uses them like evidence in the courtroom. Um, If he's a lawyer, James will make a point about something. He'll argue his case, and then he'll say, stay there. And then he'll wheel out, you know, the TV, turn it on and say, evidence number one. And you'll see, like, the CCTV of the crime or whatever. He's trying to prove to you why it's true. So here he, he, he says, be patient, okay? And you go, okay. And then he says, well, well let me give you an illustration to, to tell you why you must be patient. And he uses the illustration of a farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Um, it's a great illustration because if you're a farmer, which I'm not, so a lot of Googling happened here, but if you're a farmer, um, rain is very necessary at, at the beginning, throughout the process, and, and at the end, uh, right before harvesting of vegetables and, and fruits. Um, it's, it's holistic. Without the early rain, the seeds won't germinate. Um, late rains in March, April, they, they grow the harvest to full maturity. You, you need rain throughout those months so that the, the seeds are, are, are nurtured. Um, and every farmer knows that there's no shortcuts in farming. As a product of my generation, I'm always looking for a shortcut. Uh, but every farmer knows there's no shortcut in this process. You've just got to plant and then wait because the rains are going to do something. 
The end goal for every farmer is ultimately producing a crop. But in the meantime, and when those seeds are planted, something is happening. And I know this because seeds go into the ground, for the most part, inedible, but then they come out as really delicious and something you can't wait to get your your hands on. Um, What happened in there? What happened in the ground? Well, James is saying um, something is necessary to produce that delicious food and the same thing for your soul, for the Christian. God uses rain to produce fruit from the seed. The rain here being a picture of suffering. And you have to endure it. It's necessary if the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and ultimately the fruit of making it and enduring to the end is going to be produced in your life. And I imagine for the farmer, um, the hardest part about it is the time. And so it is for us. Isn't that true that the hardest element of almost any trial is time? That's why the psalmist so often is crying out, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? You and I, we can grit our teeth and bear almost anything for a short time. But it's, it's the years. It's the year after year. It's the decades that begin to wear us down time and james says oh but that time is necessary you know we as as people have an interesting relationship with time we want it to speed up when we're excited slow down when we're enjoying each other we want it to pass quickly when we're in pain c.s lewis made a really um interesting insight he said do fish complain of the sea for being wet Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been or would not always be purely aquatic creatures? Then if we complain of time and take such joy in the seemingly timeless moment, what does that suggest? What he's saying is we were made um, for eternity. When time would no longer be an element that brings pain or agony or decay or devastation. But in the meantime, God is using that time to produce something in you. So wait patiently. So that's lesson number one, is patience is necessary. You can't speed up this process of life. Lesson number two comes in verse eight. He says, you also be patient like the farmer. Be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Lesson number two is patience is temporary because, and it's a very simple point, but Jesus is coming. He is coming. It's at hand. At, at, At any moment, the Lord will return. Now, I think the obvious question could be, yeah, but it's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come yet. Uh, Peter addresses this in 2 Peter 3 when he says, don't, don't, um, begin to question the the surety of his promise. He is coming, and he will come like a thief in the night. The the Lord will return. And actually, in comparison to eternity, the short uh, years we live in this world is really nothing to compare. 
What's 80 years lived in light of eternity? And so take heart, James is saying. Although you Christians are enduring pain and agony, be patient because Jesus is returning. So patience is temporary. In other words, you won't always have to be patient. There is coming a day when you will not cry out anymore, how long, O Lord? Look at his third lesson in verse 9. And this one is, this one is fascinating because verse 9 seems to be almost a random addition to his thought process. He's talking about patience. He's talking about enduring because God's working something in you. And then he says, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It kind of seems like a random inclusion. Why is he all of a sudden now talking about us grumbling to one another? Now, I think, you know, think back to the minivan and you're driving to Disneyland in the middle of summer and AC goes out in the van and you start to get really bothered by your brother's elbow in your side or your sister's feet coming out from the back seat over next to your head and you start to complain and you've totally forgotten about Disneyland at this point and you're just grumbling about the people around you and you begin to bicker and fight. Um, James warns against that sort of bickering with one another. But it's directly correlated to patience. And here's why. Um, think about, can, can you think of a time in the Bible um, where grumbling was really prominent? If I were to say, people are grumbling in the Bible, where would you think? Who said it? Exodus. Yeah, the Israelites. Because over and over, chapter after chapter, as, as Israel's being miraculously led out of Egypt, they immediately begin to grumble. Now, let me give you kind of like a little tour through those scenes. I'm going to turn back to Exodus 3. You can turn with me there if you want, because there's a lesson here for us. In Exodus chapter 3, we we see in verse 8 this beautiful promise of God that he's going to deliver his people to a land flowing with milk and honey. He has good intentions for them, and he's going to deliver them. It's a promise. Now, If you go to chapter 4 and verse 31, look at the first words. The people believed. Okay, so God says, I'm going to deliver you from suffering in Egypt. And the people believe God. They have faith in him and his word. But but then trouble starts, right? In chapter 5, we see they think they're just going to march triumphantly up to Pharaoh, and he's going to go, of course, I'll let you go. Have your way. No, but he says, no, I'm not. What do you, who, is, who is Yahweh? And he actually makes their burden harder in slavery. And so immediately something happens. Um, and look at Exodus chapter 5, verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord, look on you and judge, because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Wait, what happened to their believing God that he was going to deliver them? Immediately, they're saying, forget you and your promises. Okay, well, then, you know, what happens in the next chapters is the miraculous escape from Egypt. 
God sends the ten plagues, and in an astonishing display of his sovereign power, he delivers his people from Egypt, and they are making way for the Red Sea when Pharaoh changes his mind and begins to pursue them. And we know that gripping story, their backs against the sea, mountains on each side, Pharaoh's army descending, and what does God do again? Well, even as the people are complaining, God delivers them through the Red Sea on dry land. Okay, from that point on, you would think that the Israelites would get it and say, it is good to be in Yahweh's camp. He always finds a way to deliver us and to make good on his promises. Remember his promise that he's taking us to a land flowing with milk and honey. The end goal is good. He's going to take us there, and he keeps proving it time after time after time. Let's trust him. Let's believe him. Well, instead, chapter 15 of Exodus, they get thirsty. There's nothing to drink. Verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? They become indignant and rage. In verse 25, Moses cries to the Lord, and the Lord says, look, I'm going to supply water for them. And he does so miraculously. He gives them bitter water made sweet. In chapter 16, they begin to hunger. So what does God do? He gives them manna from heaven. All the while, God is trying to tell Israel, believe me, I told you I'm going to take you to a good land. I will supply all of your needs. And yet they refuse to believe and they keep grumbling. And here in chapter 16, we learn three lessons about grumbling. You ready for them? Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people, at evening, you shall know it was the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So the Lord says he's heard their grumbling, but notice, who are they grumbling against? Look at verse 7. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. So lesson number one about grumbling is it its object is God. We, when we grumble, we're grumbling against God. And look at the effect of that grumbling in chapter 17, verse 4. Again, they're mad because they don't have water, even though he provided. And Moses cries to the Lord and says, what should I do with this people? They're ready to stone me. So the effect of grumbling is hatred. But it's really not hatred of your circumstances. Who's it hatred of? If your grumbling's against God, it's a a hatred directed at God. Now, let's just pause and we can head back to our New Testaments because as we think about the situation with Israel, which we're pretty familiar with, you think, what was the essence of that grumbling? Why were they grumbling? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us they grumbled because of unbelief. They refused to believe God that he actually was going to deliver them to the land that he promised. They refused to believe that he was able, 
and that he was good. And this really comes back to you and me. In James chapter 5, he warns us against grumbling so that we would not be judged. You know, that generation of Israelites, though the next generation would enter that good land, that generation of Israelites was so obstinate and so determined and set in their unbelief that God shut the doors of the promised land to them because they refused to believe that he would bring them there. And he warns us and says, brothers, in verse 9 of chapter 5 in James, he says, Do not grumble that you might not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And so even as we can grow so impatient in the trials of life that the Lord sends, the warning, the command is do not allow that, do not allow that suffering to, to make you doubt God's goodness, to doubt his character, to doubt his promises. Because impatience is unbelief, but patience requires faith in his promises. In verse 10, he moves on to an example of suffering and patience and gives us another lesson that patience is proven. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James is trying to encourage these suffering Christians, and so he brings in the example of prophets. Now, I don't know if you think of prophets immediately being those who suffered, um, but the life of a prophet was not a pleasant life. All we have to do is think of Jesus' words in Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. In Acts chapter 7, verse 52, we read, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. The prophets lived a very difficult life of persecution. Why? Because they so often had a message for the people that the people did not want to receive. And yet, I mean, think of those prophets that we admire and look up to. They never wavered. They they never backed down. They never stopped proclaiming the message that God had given them to proclaim. And even in the face of great persecution, persecution like being being sawn in two, Hebrews 11 tells us that some of the prophets were, were sawn in two, were cruelly treated, beaten, and killed. And yet even in the face of that suffering, they never stopped proclaiming the word of God. Why? Because they knew that there was a reward coming. In fact, look at that. Just turn a few pages back to Hebrews chapter 11. They were stoned, verse 37 says. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. 
Friends, they were waiting for something and with faith, eyes of faith, they were looking to the reward and said, no matter what happens to me, I will not waver on the promise of Yahweh. He is going to give me a reward. Some, a day is coming when I will be with him despite all of the pain, all of the agony. I will continue to wait. And so James uses their example to bolster the resolve of these suffering Christians. I think that's true for us if we think about our lives. We'll we'll endure if we know something is coming, won't we? You'll endure some difficulty if you can see on the horizon a reward for your enduring. The Apostle Paul knew this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says these words. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now listen to this. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What is Paul saying this this light momentary affliction. And we know Paul's affliction was neither light nor momentary. I mean, by any reasonable standard, right? I don't know. Have you been stoned recently? Like, who, who got here on a ship and was like, sorry, I'm late. I was shipwrecked. I got stuck on the island of Malta where a serpent bit me. Like, Paul's life, he was, he was whipped repeatedly. His back would have looked shredded, like ripped, not shredded, like shredded, like actually shredded. He endured horrific persecution and tribulation. But in light of the coming reward, he says, that, oh, that, that's nothing. I'd live it all over again for the reward that's coming. Oh, and he says momentary. Now, I guarantee you, Paul didn't think it was momentary in the sense of like, just a flash in the pan. It was decades of torment. You know that. Years in prison, decades of suffering, and yet he was looking with eternity stamped on his eyelids. In light of eternity, it's light and it's momentary. And so James points to those prophets who endured and proved their faith in enduring as they were patient awaiting the reward. And, and that's point number five in verse 11. Patience will be rewarded. Um, look at verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Blessed. A blessing is coming if you endure. Okay. Um, I love James's illustrations. He uses some really phenomenal ones throughout his letter. Like, for instance, in James 3, when he's talking about how powerful the tongue is, he says it's such a small member. Um, and he, uh, he, he draws a correlation to a bit in a horse's mouth. It's a really good illustration, right? You're right. This 1,500-pound uh, racehorse or thoroughbred is controlled by that three-inch little bridle in its, or bit in its mouth. It's a really great illustration. Good job, James. He's doing good on the illustrations. But this illustration strikes me as a little odd. And I don't think it's one I would readily use if he didn't. 
but I think we'll discover why it's the perfect one. Here's the illustration, ready? Guys, endure suffering. I know it's painful, and I know it's hard, but, but look at Job. And you go, what? Job? Yeah, look at Job. Remember the guy who lost everything? The guy who was, had Satan unleashed upon him, and God said, have Adam, just don't kill him. Come on, you can do this. And you go, I don't know if that's exactly the illustration I need right now because things didn't seem to work out so great for Job. But look at what he says. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Okay, we've got to dig into that because I don't read Job and go, you know what the two attributes of God are after reading these, verse, or these chapters? Compassion and mercy. I mean, I think, well, he's in control, right? Let's see why James does this. He says, patience will be rewarded, and he uses Job as the model of that. Now, let's think back to the book of Job. If you start reading the book of Job, at the beginning of the book, Job really is a model of patient endurance. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a great response, right? But then things keep getting worse and so does Job's disposition. One man writes that impassioned outbursts against the shallow platitudes of Job's so-called comforters or his distressed protest to God himself is not a model of stoic impassibility. Another says, honesty, not patience, is the real virtue of Job. Why? Because as things continue to digress, Job begins to say things like Job 3.3, let the day perish on which I was born. Or Job 3.11, why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Job wasn't this perfect example of um, non-emotional, well, whatever will be, will be. No, as his circumstances degraded, he began to lash out and to argue and to fight. He showed himself, one man said, to be very human in his feelings of frustrations. And you read some of what Job says, and, and it can make you a little uncomfortable how he talks to God and argues with his creator. But the important thing to note, as you read through that whole drama, is that Job's basic faith in God never wavered. When his wife told him to curse God and die, he refused. He endured incredible suffering but he continued to trust Yahweh. And this should really be a comfort to us that there's no stoicism in Job. That even though Job was agonizing and in pain and argued, he never, he, 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 was, he wasn't unattached. And I think sometimes as Christians, we can, we can maybe especially as comforters, come to those suffering and just go, well, hey, you just know God is good and you'll be fine, okay? 
And we don't relate to the brokenness and the tears and the pain that some of you are going through as your family relationships are being ripped apart or your own soul is being ravaged as you're suffering from all sorts of angles. And, and you say, you know, come, you come to your comforters and they go, just go, well, God is sovereign. God's in control, okay? And you say, but don't you feel what I'm feeling? And friends, as you read Job, you can be assured that Job was very human, He experienced every single ounce of the full weight of his children being slaughtered. And there were times when he argued back to God and had outbursts. But Job never cursed God and he never wavered from trusting God. And ultimately he was rewarded. And what James says is look to his steadfastness because you've seen the purpose of the Lord. And friends, this is where we get to the heart of our suffering and the heart of the trust that we must have in him. You've seen the purpose of the Lord. Notice in our suffering, God does have a purpose. And we can learn from that, that whatever that purpose is, it's not meaningless suffering. Maybe we don't see what God's purpose is, but James is telling us he has a purpose. I'll never forget an illustration that Tim Keller gave, which I thought was just brilliant about why God allows certain things to happen in the world. And he said, Imagine you and I go camping up in Michigan at the, at the Great Lakes. And imagine I, I asked you to go into our tent and tell me if you see any St. Bernards. So you go into the tent, you look, and there are no St. Bernards in the tent. And you come back and say, no, there are no St. Bernards. Okay, now go back into the tent and, and tell me if there are any noceums in the tent. Now, a noceum is a little bug that is so tiny, it's invisible to the human eye. So you go into the tent and you look and you come back and say, yeah, there, there are no noceums in the tent. And his point is, well, there could be thousands of noceums in the tent. Just because you don't see them doesn't mean they're not there. And friend, just because you don't see the exact purpose of why God has allowed you to endure what you're enduring doesn't mean he doesn't have a purpose. Because even with Job, he had a purpose. And he had many purposes. One of them was to put Satan to shame for the ages. To put on display his power over demonic forces for thousands of years to come. That other Christians would see the sovereign God. But Job didn't know that. He didn't get to read chapter 1. But God had a purpose. So maybe in your suffering, you don't see his purposes either. Maybe there are no see-its, no see-ems. But you can say what Job said in Job 13. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. But then he says, yet I will argue my ways to him. <laughs> He's human. He argued, yet he endured, he never wavered. Now, this is really the shocking part of what James says. Look at the end of verse 11. He tells us the purpose of the Lord, how he is compassionate and merciful. I don't read the slaughter of ten children, the desecration of everything he owned, the ruining of his reputation, 
the assault on his body as compassion. But when you read the end of that book, you see that God gave back twofold everything he took, including his children, so that even now Job stands not with 10, but with 20 children in glory. True compassion and mercy, James says. Instead of giving Job what he deserved, he gave him everything he didn't deserve. Friends, you do realize, and look, whatever you're going through, whatever you endure, even if you have to take this sermon, put it in your back pocket for future suffering, you can know that everything this side of hell is nothing but mercy. And for Job, he never wavered from trusting the Lord even when he could not understand what he was doing. Friends, suffering is coming. Do you know the one who stands above it all with compassion and mercy? He's doing something. It's not meaningless. He's producing something in you. It has a purpose. It has an end. And for the Christian, we can see what it's doing. It's making us more like His Son. It's making us more like Christ who came and suffered so that we could live for eternity. We're joining in with His suffering and being conformed to His image. But if you're not a Christian, you you, you know you're going to suffer as well. It's the way of this world. But friend, what's the purpose? For the Christian, we endure it patiently. But if you don't know Christ, you don't have a reason to be patient. Because this life is all you've got. So this call to be patient isn't a call for you. The call for you is, well, just, just try to escape the suffering if you can. Because these few short years is all you have to enjoy. So just live your life trying to get away from as much pain, as much suffering as possible, because there's nothing after this for you except an eternity apart from your Creator in hell. This is the best it's going to get. Friend, I would call you to the hope of the Christian who can say, like Paul in Romans chapter 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed for, to us. For the creation waits for eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And we be patient as we await the coming of our King. Let's pray. Father, help us to be strengthened by your word to endure the difficulties and trials of this broken world as we look to our King who is coming soon to bring us home. May we endure, Father, looking forward. And if there are any who don't know you, who don't have that hope, may today be the day they find hope in Christ, hope that extends beyond these short, pain-filled years in life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.